Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, December 2nd, 2022, the 681st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands, and if you can't or you don't want to, just keep listening to it for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the show everywhere to listen, the social media, the writing, and the merch site at linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's start out with a mostly amusing at this point topic that I never thought we would ever have to cover again, but apparently we do. And that topic is mask mandates. And you might think there's no way Anyone's going to mandate masking again, is there? Well, let me introduce you to Los Angeles, California. This is today in the LA Times. How close is LA County to a new COVID-19 mask mandate? Here is what we know. This article is by Ronggong Lin Tu and a man named Luke Money. <laughs> Luke Money. That sounds like the name of whatever character will star in the reboot of Knight Rider. And apparently they needed two writers to get this article out. In what has now become a pattern during the pandemic, coronavirus cases are rising as we enter the holiday season in L.A. County. It is still far from clear how big a potential winter surge could be. Some officials are optimistic the wave will not be as bad as past seasons. But officials warn that continued spikes in COVID-19 could bring a return to an indoor mask mandate. Here's what we know. Well, here's something I know. 
They just tried to do this at the end of July and weren't able to follow through with it. But you know how COVID is during the winter and whenever, you know, they're trying to sell new boosters, all of a sudden they go through a marketing wave of boosters and then another COVID surge hits. And then they all say, thank goodness, what timing, thank goodness everybody has their booster shots for this new surge that didn't come around as a result of more people getting their booster shots. What are the COVID numbers in LA? Cases. LA County's coronavirus case rate has been increasing since late October and is now triple what it was in the autumn low. For the week that ended Thursday, LA County was recording 2,710 cases per day, or 188 cases a week for every 100,000 residents. A case rate of 100 or more is considered high. The autumn low was a weekly rate of 60, set on October 21st. Very important stuff. Very, very important stuff. The case rate. Do the tests work now? Because we know they didn't work before. Nope. And who's going out to get these tests in the first place? Who knows? Why is anyone testing for a disease that can only kill one out of every thousand people, all of them of advanced age and significant comorbidities? No one will ever know. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there were 1,196 new admissions of coronavirus positive patients for the week that ended Tuesday, triple the rate from the beginning of November. That's 11.9 new weekly hospitalizations for every 100,000 residents. A rate exceeding 10 is enough to send L.A. County to the medium COVID-19 community level. They've just made it up, but that's okay. That's okay. People in Los Angeles know that these numbers are very, very important. Deaths. The COVID-19 death rate remains stable in L.A. County at around 60 per week. But if cases continue to rise, so too will deaths. Eventually, three years later, they're still saying that. Isn't it incredible? It's never proven true, but it does sound scary to people who are scared of absolutely everything. What would it take to force a new indoor mask mandate? Should hospital measures worsen, LA County could be on track for the return of a mandatory mask mandate in indoor public settings. Oh, so hospitalizations then is the factor. And wait a second. Do they test everybody that goes into the hospital and they're already in the hospital for something else and then they get tested for COVID and then that test is positive and then they count as a COVID hospitalization? Yes, in fact, that's how they've run it the entire time. To get there, the case rate would need to top 200 a week for every 100,000 residents. LA County could hit that threshold next week. Oh no. But before a mask mandate were triggered, the percentage of hospital beds used by coronavirus-positive patients would also need to exceed 10%, a level reached only during the two prior COVID-19 winter surges, the deadliest of the pandemic. The current figure is 5.6%, which is up from around 2% at the start of November. Oh, we have a very scary trend. What would the timing of a mask mandate look like? It would take several more weeks of increasing numbers to reach the trigger point based on current trends. It remains uncertain whether that'll happen. Los Angeles County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer said she doesn't expect L.A. County to hit the increased hospitalization rate anytime soon. I don't think it'll be there next week. I'd be very surprised, Ferrer said. It would mean that hospitalizations are really going up very, very quickly, much more quickly than we usually see. If L.A. County does reach all the benchmarks to trigger a new mask order, officials could decide to implement the rule a couple of weeks later, Ferrer said. Oh, a couple of weeks later. I guess that's just what the science says. Well, if we get too many cases and too many hospitalizations, then a few weeks from now, we're going to have to institute some COVID measures that don't work and never have and never possibly could. What happened last summer when COVID cases rose? Over the summer, L.A. County reached the threshold to initiate a new mask order in response to rising cases and hospitalizations, triggering a countdown for the order to go into effect two weeks later in late July. But that order never went into place as cases and hospitalization rates dipped just in time. 
We'll have to look at the rate of increase and what we're seeing in terms of that to decide what that time frame would be, Ferrer said. And then, as we've done in the past, as soon as we see the numbers that show us that transmission has lowered and that concerns at our hospitals are lower, we'll go ahead and lift the mask order. What do experts say about the winter COVID-19 forecast? The rising cases have brought concern and calls for people to take precautions, but there is also some optimism. Some of the advantages this year compared to past seasons is an updated COVID-19 booster shot that's pretty well matched to the circulating strains of the coronavirus, ample supplies of at-home rapid tests and general awareness of steps that can be taken to avoid illness, including masking up in indoor public settings, staying home when sick, and improving airflow by taking events outdoors, opening windows, and turning up air filtration units. There's even some promising news about the unrelenting emergence of new coronavirus subvariants, none of which have dramatically raised alarm bells the way the original Omicron strain did when it stormed onto the world stage last Thanksgiving. But COVID-19 has proved hard to predict. Where are the statements from the experts? The heading for that little paragraph, as I just read, said, What do experts say about the winter COVID-19 forecast? And there's not anything there from experts. There are some links to other articles. One of them is just the word optimism. You might be interested to find out that Rong Gong Lin Tu is a Metro reporter based in San Francisco who specializes in covering statewide earthquake safety issues and the COVID-19 pandemic. And Luke Money is not nearly as cool as you might think. So with absolutely no proof anywhere in the world that masks have ever worked at all to slow the spread of an aerosolized virus, Los Angeles County is still considering making everyone wear masks when they go out to do their Christmas shopping. That's about what we have here. And apparently the fake president is trying to get mask mandates reinstituted on airplanes so that Everyone traveling for Christmas will be able to see the complicity of all of the communist child brains throughout our society. You might think that the pandemic is over just because the fake president said so and because no one has any idea it's even around unless we're told about it constantly, which, by the way, has been the case the entire time. If we were never, ever told about COVID-19, no one would have ever noticed it. And I know it seems hard to believe that, to accept it, but give it some thought. There's no way we would have ever known. In fact, COVID was around in our society for somewhere between like three and a half and four and a half months before anyone did know or did care or change their lives at all. Every single time a state, a city, a sort of activity has opened itself back up for business so that people can go on about their normal lives, there has never been one increase in anything. The entire narrative is false. The entire narrative is obviously false, and they're still going forward with it anyway. For masks, what are the masks for? Because they're certainly not to prevent COVID. We know for a fact, right? Even normies know for a fact that the cloth masks don't do anything. The CDC told them that. The CDC had changed their policy months and months ago, claiming that the cloth masks might provide some layer of protection, but they don't really work and people need to be using N95 and KN95 masks. And naturally, Very committed maskies with apparently too much money to waste on pointless and oppressive virtue signaling jumped immediately on board and invested in N95 masks, which they do not wear correctly, so they cannot work at all. And I've been talking about that now for two and a half plus years, but I know what you're thinking. Where's the science? Well, here's some of the science. This is from Just the News today. Rigorous international study of N95 masks upends federal COVID narrative. 
The CDC took nearly two years to formally recognize distinctions between masks for mitigating COVID-19 spread, finally saying in January that cloth masks offer the least protection and N95 respirators, which meet strict federal standards, the highest. The agency's slight nod to the largely symbolic value of cloth masks, predominantly worn in school settings, followed months of calls by one-time White House COVID advisors, among others, to promote masks actually designed to stop aerosolized transmission. It also spurred a run on N95s, sending prices skyward. But a new peer-reviewed, randomized, controlled trial of N95s versus surgical masks considered the mid-range of protection is undermining the late federal pivot to higher quality masks and calls to reimpose mask mandates in schools, among other settings. Published in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week and led by researchers at Canada's McMaster University, the study found no statistically significant difference in protection between the two kinds of masks in healthcare facilities in Canada, Israel, Pakistan, and Egypt. Funders included the Canadian government and World Health Organization, which, unlike the U.S., opposes masking young children and also found no evidence face coverings made a difference against influenza in a 2019 study. Previous randomized controlled trials in the COVID era have found mediocre protection from face coverings at best. A Danish study of 6,000 that had trouble getting published and eventually landed in AIM, the Annals of Internal Medicine, found no statistically significant difference between surgical and no mask wearers. A much larger Bangladeshi study led by Yale researchers found that villages that got surgical masks reduced symptomatic infection by 11%, but the confidence interval hit zero and statistical significance disappeared for every age group under 50. Cloth masks had an imprecise zero effect. So just a quick recap there, the study finds no difference between N95s and surgical masks, and a different study found no difference between surgical masks and wearing no mask at all. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt claimed that retiring National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Anthony Fauci, whose flip-flops on masking led to mass public confusion early in the pandemic, couldn't name any studies showing mask effectiveness in his recent deposition in state-led litigation against alleged federal censorship. Okay, so we've talked about this before. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, they have a lawsuit against members of the illegitimate Biden administration and others for their coordination with big tech companies to censor the speech of Americans based on COVID misinformation. Anthony Fauci was just deposed last week on Wednesday, the 23rd. And in his deposition, he was asked whether or not he had studies to support his position on masking, and he did not. Eric Schmidt tweeted, Another tidbit from the Fauci deposition. In February 2020, he emailed a friend advising her masks were ineffective. Confirmed again on March 31st. On April 3rd, he's adamant masks should be worn even though he couldn't cite a single study to prove it. Mandates followed. Lives ruined. COVID tyranny is born. And we have had those emails from Fauci since I think at least August of 2021. Lawyer Jenin Yunez, whose new Civil Liberties Alliance joined Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry in the litigation, told the Epoch Times Fauci also couldn't cite what, quote, studies or study changed his mind in that interim, end quote, between his private position to masking in February 2020 and public embrace of masking in April. The McMaster study enrolled about a thousand healthcare workers from May 2020 through March 2022 who provided direct care to patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 and pledged to wear either fit-tested N95s or surgical masks for 10 weeks at all times in their facilities. Weekly self-reporting was backed by external monitoring wherever feasible and occasional audits. Workers were excluded if they didn't have a valid fit test within the past 24 months or could not pass a fit test, had at least one high-risk COVID morbidity, 
had previous lab-confirmed COVID or had received one or more COVID vaccine doses with greater than 50% efficacy for the circulating strain. So all of that is basically nonsense, but whatever. Excluding lower quality vaccines common abroad. You see that there are even lower quality vaccines than the ones people are pumping into their arms here. Now, you might have caught that little bit about a fit test, right? You need a fit test to be included in the study so that they know that your N95 mask is properly worn. So what's a fit test? This is from OHS Canada, how to perform a proper N95 fit test. This was from April 17th, 2020. And it says employees requiring respirators must be properly fit tested. How many people do you see out and about in your life wearing these N95 masks who've had their masks properly fit tested? Is it zero? Yes, it's zero. COVID-19 has reached pandemic proportions and the potential for a second wave of the outbreak this fall proves that complacency has no role in the control of new and potentially fatal respiratory diseases. The leading health organizations all recommend the use of N95 tight-fitting air purifying respirators. N95s reduce the exposure to viruses and are also effective when exposed to tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. The prefix N refers to not oil resistant, and the respirator will remove 95% of all particles that are at least 0.3 microns in diameter. The Canadian Standards Association's Z94.4 standard and provincial regulations for healthcare and residential facilities, industrial establishments, and construction sites requires that all workers pass a fit test before wearing a respirator for the first time. Users of tight-fitting respirators require fit testing every two years or sooner. It's crazy, right? There's actually a standard for wearing that mask. And also, those masks actually aren't healthy for everyone to wear. Fit testing program elements. Any comprehensive respirator protection program requires a number of specific elements. Procedures should be available for selecting respirators appropriate for the work being done, for proper use of respirators, for fit testing, and roles and responsibilities of workplace parties. So you mean you can't just throw one on and be totally protected from COVID? That's too bad. Well, at least you can just put one on and be totally virtuous. You're protecting everybody. Additional elements of a program include the following. Procedures and schedules for storing, inspecting, cleaning, disinfecting, and maintaining respirators. Well, that sounds complicated. You mean you can't just put it down on the little table by the door where you put your keys and then grab it the next day and wear it again? <laughs> Education of employees regarding potential hazards during routine and emergency situations. Training of employees on how to properly use, wear, remove, and dispose of respirators, as well as the limitations of respirators. Employee respirator user screening and health surveillance form. This sounds pretty complicated. Upon beginning a fit test, test hoods are placed over employees' heads. Wearing gloves, the fit tester pumps 10 puffs of an aerosolized sensitivity test solution, a dilute version of the fit test solution, often denatonium benzoate, into the hood. Detectable at one part per 20 million, the world's most bitter substance is a useful tool to stop children from sucking their thumbs or drinking household cleaners. Okay. Because the test is qualitative, the employee will indicate when he tastes the solution. In some cases, workers will tear off their test hoods immediately following the test, while others will display a look of disgust. Some do not taste the substance until sufficient concentrations are reached. The test is given to ensure that employees being fit tested can taste the solution at very low levels and to determine the concentration of test solution to be maintained during the actual fit test. Once properly fitted with a respirator, there should be no leaks and in turn, no taste detected during the fit test. And it goes on and on and on. But my point is no one does this. No one does this. Absolutely zero maskies 
are going around and doing this when they acquire their masks. They also go out in the rain in these masks. They go for runs in these masks. They go to the gym. They take these masks on and off while eating and drinking. It's an absolute clown show. And it turns out they don't even work for COVID. Now, Michael Osterholm, the White House COVID advisor, a strong booster of N95s, published a report that tried to discredit the findings. This is back to Just the News, by the way. We just don't need another poorly designed and conducted study on this, Osterholm said in Sidrap's report, claiming that N95 superiority over surgical masks was already settled. And they may well be superior to surgical masks for any number of things, just not for this thing. And that's all that matters. It's really crazy to see the same people who claimed that N95s were a parachute, an intervention so obvious it needs no control group. To argue this trial was underpowered, tweeted University of California, San Francisco epidemiologist Vinay Prasad. According to physics, there should have been no infections in the N95 group, right? Truth is, actual behavior interventions like masking generally fail. The study really shows the difference between theory and real-world practice, some observers claimed. If N95s are more effective in long Twitter rants than in pragmatic randomized controlled trials, it might be time to move on and focus on other interventions, Johns Hopkins epidemiologist Stefan Baral tweeted. As one doctor told me, if you can wear an N95 for more than 30 minutes, you are wearing it wrong tweeted George Mason University law professor Todd Zwicky. Also illustrates that mechanistic evidence here of N95 superior filtration doesn't always equal real-world significance. Lawyer and COVID policy critic Newman Nahas tweeted. And that is a very interesting point. Just because you can say theoretically that the physics would make sense that this mask actually could stop. It doesn't mean it did do it. And that's the same sort of problem we have with the vaccines, by the way. The vaccines are proven in their studies to increase antibodies. And theoretically, those antibodies should stop COVID infection and transmission and serious illness and death. It just turns out in reality that it doesn't do any of those things. Yet we still have people pretending that the theory is more important than the reality. So at this point, even to normies and people who believe that they are following the science, masks don't work. There's no argument they can possibly make anymore that masks do work. And by the way, there wasn't prior either. They've just really settled into the whole N95 thing. Well, some mask must work. But no, they had actually studied that before the very deadly pandemic started. And the answer was the same then. The science hasn't changed. The science hasn't evolved. The science has, however, lied to everyone for years. So why do they want to do it? Are they just testing to see how stupid the residents of Los Angeles County are? are maybe and hey i'm not talking about all of you you know that right you're from la that upset you why was i talking about you no i lived in la i knew that masks didn't work we're all good are they just trying to destroy holiday travel on purpose and holiday get-togethers on purpose well you definitely can't put it past them that's for sure are they planning some upcoming riots hey maybe the communists need something to get riled up about. But Merry Christmas, Los Angeles. You can be muzzled for the holidays. This is what you get for refusing to stand up to anything. Now, for the record, I talked to one of my L.A. friends yesterday and he was like, there's no way this is happening and people are not going to go along with it. So I hope that they try it so people will not go along with it and that presents the best outcome of all worlds. If they just back off the policy again, we don't really get to put that to the test. We don't really get to see the maskies go out and get upset because everybody's not doing what they're told. And in terms of advancing the narrative, 
it's actually better for them to see that. It's better for everybody to see the government overreach, the government oppression once again, and people actually refuse to comply. That's the best case scenario, not them just giving up on this stupid policy. But let's talk about some other ridiculous communist nonsense. This is from the New York Times today. Hate speeches rise on Twitter is unprecedented. Researchers find. Now, is that true? Of course, it's not true. And Elon Musk put out the statistics on hate speech today. Not that hate speech is a real thing, but they track it on Twitter the way they did before. And it turns out it's at a very, very low level. But that doesn't matter to the New York Times, and that doesn't matter to those addicted to the central narrative because hate speech to them is something they can talk about and feel good about themselves for discussing all the time. I'm adamantly opposed to hate speech. Okay, commie, we get it. You are the best behaved communist on the whole planet. Congratulations once again for reaffirming that you do not subscribe to any hate whatsoever except for everybody who disagrees with you about virtually anything. Before Elon Musk bought Twitter, slurs against black Americans showed up on the social media service an average of 1,282 times a day. After the billionaire became Twitter's owner, they jumped to 3,876 times a day. Slurs against gay men appeared on Twitter 2,506 times a day on average before Musk took over. Afterward, their use rose to 3,964 times a day. And anti-Semitic posts referring to Jews or Judaism soared more than 61% in the two weeks after Mr. Musk acquired the site. These findings from the Center for Countering Digital Hate the Anti-Defamation League, and other groups that study online platforms provide the most comprehensive picture to date of how conversations on Twitter have changed since Mr. Musk completed his $44 billion deal for the company in late October. While the numbers are relatively small, researchers said the increases were atypically high. Now, we've talked about the Center for Countering Digital Hate before, and we've talked about the Anti-Defamation League before. These are organizations set up to scream racist and anti-Semite at anything they don't like. And they have proved that over the past few weeks. They have been huge proponents of additional censorship on Twitter. They are deathly afraid of free speech returning to that platform. And by the way, I was much more optimistic about that at the beginning of the week as I discussed Elon Musk had talked about an amnesty for all the banned accounts. Apparently, some of that is in process and some of that is happening, but there are still far too many banned accounts, particularly from very popular people, including very polite, popular people like Naomi Wolf and Dr. Peter McCullough. They're not back. And then Kanye West went on a uh, tweet spree last night, a very strange one, by the way, where it seemed like he was trying to trigger everyone in existence. And eventually he posted a symbol that looks like a combination of the six point star of David and a swastika. But it also happens to be the icon for the religious sect belief cult, some people call it, of uh, Rielism. But don't worry, they've updated their icon. So now it's not a swastika in the middle. It's just a, a swirly thing. But let's look into Rielism for just a second. Rielism, also known as Raelianism or the Raelian movement, is a UFO religion that was founded in the 1970s in France by Claude Vorillon, now known as Rael. Scholars of religion classify Raelism as a cult and a new religious movement. The group is formalized as the International Raelian Movement, IRM, or Raelian Church, a hierarchical organization under Rael's leadership. Raelism teaches that an extraterrestrial species known as the Elohim 
created humanity using their advanced technology. An atheistic religion, it believes that the Elohim have historically been mistaken for gods. It claims that throughout history, the Elohim have created 40 Elohim slash human hybrids who have served as prophets preparing humanity for news about their origins. Among those considered prophets are the Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad, with Rael being the 40th and final prophet. Raelists believe that since the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in 1945, humanity has entered an age of apocalypse in which it threatens itself with nuclear annihilation. Raelism argues that humanity must find a way of harnessing new scientific and technological development for peaceful purposes, and that once this has been achieved, the Elohim shall return to Earth to share their technology with humanity and establish a utopia. To this end, the Raelians have sought to build an embassy for the Elohim that incorporates a landing pad for their spaceship. Raelians engage in daily meditation, hope for physical immortality through human cloning, and promote a liberal ethical system with a strong emphasis on sexual experimentation. So there you go. That's really something. Now, this new religious movement was an aspect of one of my absolute favorite novels of all time, a book called The Possibility of an Island by the renowned French writer Michel Houellebecq. And so last night I was immediately like, oh, wow, are we really going to do this now? And maybe we are, maybe we're not. I have no idea where anything that has to do with Kanye West is going anymore. It all seems like a setup to me. It seems staged. It seems like an obvious op. I mean, now Milo Yiannopoulos is involved, Nick Fuentes, Alex Jones, and Ali Alexander. And apparently there's at least a rumor out there that it was Ali Alexander tweeting for Kanye West while Kanye was on air on the Alex Jones show. And who knows what else, but Kanye West posted this picture and everyone went absolutely out of their minds, even though it's just a picture of this religious group's iconography. Apparently that was hate speech. And apparently Elon Musk has said he suspended Kanye West for incitement to violence, Kanye's last picture was a photo of Elon Musk getting sprayed with a hose on board a yacht. And so maybe that was the incitement to violence. I don't know. The whole thing is so far beyond stupid that trying to make sense of it is almost kind of pointless. But I'm fairly certain that putting up a religious symbol from some strange alien cult is not an incitement to violence, even if the symbol does look like a Jewish star combined with a swastika. People create all sorts of offensive iconography with the cross. That's still allowed on there. The communist hammer and sickle is still allowed on there. The Black Lives Matter fist is still on there. And few symbols in our society have incited more violence than that one in the last few years. It seems like the standard for speech at Twitter has not changed all that much. If enough of the right people get mad enough, then the person gets censored. That's essentially what we're seeing. Kanye West actually went over to Truth Social and made his very first post last night, right after this all happened. So that's Interesting, I guess, a situation that we will watch develop. And now I know that people think Kanye has lost his mind, and maybe he has. I also know that I don't care, and I'm not here to psychoanalyze Kanye West. Whether or not strangers think he's gone crazy is not the standard to decide whether or not he has free speech. Let's go back to the New York Times. The shift in speech is just the tip of a set of changes on the service under Mr. Musk. Accounts that Twitter used to regularly remove, such as those that identify as part of the Islamic State, which were banned after the U.S. government classified ISIS as a terror group, have come roaring back. Accounts associated with QAnon 
a vast far-right conspiracy theory, have paid for and received verified status on Twitter, giving them a sheen of legitimacy. Who? Who is that who's done that? I mean, is it me? <laughs> like, who, who are these people? And what does associated with QAnon even mean anymore after they've packed every possible dissenting position to the mainstream narrative into the definition of QAnon? These changes are alarming, researchers said, adding that they had never seen such a sharp increase in hate speech, problematic content, and formerly banned accounts in such a short period on a mainstream social platform. Well, yeah, it's impossible to see such an increase in formerly banned accounts because that has only gone in one direction. There have only been more banned accounts, not fewer. So yeah, you're going to see that sort of increase. Also, problematic content. This is straight up Ministry of Truth Orwellian stuff. Elon Musk sent up the bat signal to every kind of racist, misogynist, and homophobe that Twitter was open for business, said Imran Ahmed, the chief executive for the Center for Countering Digital Hate. They have reacted accordingly. Mr. Musk, who did not respond to a request for comment, has been vocal about being a free speech absolutist who believes in unfettered discussions online. He has moved swiftly to overhaul Twitter's practices, allowing former President Donald J. Trump, who was barred for tweets that could incite violence, to return. Did Donald Trump's tweets incite violence? No, they absolutely did not. And all you need to do to know that is read his tweets and understand that no violence followed them. Last week, Mr. Musk proposed a widespread amnesty for accounts that Twitter's previous leadership had suspended. And on Tuesday, he ended enforcement of a policy against COVID misinformation. And it's funny how they just throw that in there. They just lump it in because their readers will say, Oh, look, that's even extra dangerous. He's allowing hate speech and COVID misinformation, except everything they flagged as COVID misinformation was true. But Mr. Musk has denied claims that hate speech has increased on Twitter under his watch. Last month, he tweeted a downward trending graph that he said showed that hate speech impressions had dropped by a third since he took over. He did not provide underlying numbers or details of how he was measuring hate speech. Except he kind of did. It's impressions, which means that if hate speech was appearing, people weren't seeing it. Now, again, hate speech isn't a real category of speech, but however Twitter has defined that made up category, the reach of that hate speech has actually been diminished since he took over. And again, he just posted statistics today showing the same thing. So it's basically two communist organizations whose primary purpose is to further censor the speech of people around the world. They say that hate speech has gone up with no proof. These are baseless claims. And Elon Musk, who's actually in Twitter and can give you the statistics, shows that their claims aren't true. And the New York Times still sides with the people offering no evidence for their baseless claims. On Thursday, Mr. Musk said the account of Kanye West, which was restricted for a spell in October because of an anti-Semitic tweet, would be suspended indefinitely after the rapper known as Ye tweeted an image of a swastika inside the Star of David. On Friday, Mr. Musk said Twitter would publish hate speech impressions every week and agreed with a tweet that said hate speech spiked last week because of Ye's anti-Semitic posts. Changes in Twitter's content not only have societal implications, but also affect the company's bottom line. Advertisers, which provide about 90% of Twitter's revenue, have reduced their spending on the platform as they wait to see how it will fare under Mr. Musk. Some have said they are concerned that the quality of discussions on the platform will suffer. And again, who are these transnational corporations to determine what constitutes the quality of a discussion they're not involved in? 
All of this is so ridiculous. And even Elon Musk's framing of these issues is ridiculous at times. He talks about the quality of debate as if Twitter is a platform for debate. Twitter is a platform for speech and expression. No one is required to debate. People don't have to go out and prove things wrong just because they see something wrong. I don't even try to prove anything. I just make fun of people saying really dumb things. I'm not trying to debate people who exist in a false reality. On Wednesday, Twitter sought to reassure advertisers about its commitment to online safety. Brand safety is only possible when human safety is the top priority. The company wrote in a blog post, all of this remains true today. The appeal to advertisers coincided with a meeting between Mr. Musk and Thierry Breton, the digital chief of the European Union, in which they discussed content moderation and regulation, according to an EU spokesman. Mr. Breton has pressed Elon Musk to comply with the Digital Services Act, a European law that requires social platforms to reduce online harm or face fines and other penalties. Mr. Breton plans to visit Twitter's San Francisco headquarters early next year to perform a stress test of its ability to moderate content and combat disinformation, the spokesman said. Oh, that'll be great. On Twitter itself, researchers said the increase in hate speech, anti-Semitic posts, and other troubling content had begun before Mr. Musk loosened the service's content rules. That suggested that a further surge could be coming, they said. Better put on masks. Maybe that will stop the spread of this very dangerous speech. If that happens, it's unclear whether Mr. Musk will have policies in place to deal with problematic speech, or even if he does, whether Twitter has the employees to keep up with moderation. You see that? He's broken the whole thing. Mr. Musk laid off, fired, or accepted the resignations of more than half the company's staff last month, including those who worked to remove harassment, foreign interference, and disinformation from the service. Yoel Roth, Twitter's head of trust and safety, was among those who quit or was fired. The Anti-Defamation League, which files regular reports of anti-Semitic tweets to Twitter and keeps track of which posts are removed, said the company had gone from taking action on 60% of the tweets it reported to only 30% of the tweets. Isn't that terrible? They're there to exist as the Internet's tattletale and no one's listening to them anymore. We have advised Musk that Twitter should not just keep the policies it has had in place for years. It should dedicate resources to those policies, said Yael Eisenstadt, a vice president at the Anti-Defamation League, who met with Mr. Musk last month. She said he did not appear interested in taking the advice of civil rights groups and other organizations because he doesn't have to. And everyone knows what you guys are doing. The lack of action extends to new accounts affiliated with terror groups and others that Twitter previously banned. In the first 12 days after Mr. Musk assumed control, 450 accounts associated with ISIS were created, up 69% from the previous 12 days. According to the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a think tank that studies online platforms, well, who's ISIS and who made those accounts? Other social media companies are also increasingly concerned about how content is being moderated on Twitter. And why are they concerned? It's not their platform losing advertisers, is it? Oh, wait. Those platforms might have to remove some of their censorship once people realize how much censorship there is. Is that the concern? When Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, found accounts associated with Russian and Chinese state-backed influence campaigns on its platforms last month, it tried to alert Twitter, said two members of Meta's security team, who asked not to be named because they were not authorized to speak publicly. The two companies often communicated on these issues, since foreign influence campaigns typically linked fake accounts on Facebook to Twitter. But this time was different. The emails to their counterparts at Twitter bounced or went unanswered, the Meta employees said, in a sign that those workers may have been fired. It's so sad. Their censorship partners at Twitter are no longer there. They can't discuss how to censor with their Twitter counterparts anymore. 
Imagine what that must be like, knowing that the no-no words are appearing on the internet and not being able to do anything about them. These people are insane. And the people at the New York Times are actually a little more insane than you might think. This is from New York Magazine this morning. The New York Times newsroom gets ready to walk out. This morning at 8 a.m., New York Times publisher A.G. Salzberger and CEO Meredith Coppett-Levian received a letter from Bill Baker, unit chair of the Times Guild, that was signed by more than a thousand employees. Subject line, enough. If there is no contract by December 8th, we are walking out. So we might be six days away from the New York Times not being able to make up the news. Back in September, I wrote about how the unionized staff and management hadn't come to terms on a new labor contract and were threatening to do something like, well, what this letter has finally threatened to do. For months, the newsroom has been pressing its publisher for a bigger share of the Times profits. But it turns out the guy whose predecessors were nicknamed Punch and Pinch is no pushover. I mean, they write for children, honestly. So now they've decided to give the boss a hard deadline. The letter demands a week-long marathon bargaining session over health care funds and return to office policies and their pension plan. But what employees really want is permanent increases in base pay. If they don't get enough of a salary bump, they're going to stop working for 24 hours next Thursday. Oh, that is going to be so much leverage. And this is an interesting insight into how weak and uncommitted workers are to their jobs in these organizations that put their communism front and center. They want more health care funds. They want to continue working from home and they want their pensions increased. They also want to be paid more for doing the absolutely horrendous job they do. The New York Times is shedding subscribers. All of these media outlets are. We know that their numbers are down across the board because people have realized it's fake news. And yet everyone involved in producing their terrible product wants to be paid more and have more benefits for creating the terrible product no one actually wants. A walkout is technically a strike, though one with an end date. There was a one-hour walkout over a lapsed contract in 2011 and another quick afternoon walkout in 2017 over copy editors being eliminated. But those were mostly shows of solidarity. No kidding. Those weren't holding the organization's feet to the fire. What the employees are preparing to do next week would be something not seen at the paper of record since 1978. Picture it. A full day without the New York Times. Oh my God, I can't picture it. The world might stop turning on its axis. No one covering the tumult in Guangzhou or inside Buckingham Palace or what our president is saying. From midnight to midnight, no reporting, no filing stories, no podcasting, no comment moderating, and definitely no responding to editors' queries. There would be no live briefings. You'd be shocked at how many people it takes to produce one of those things. Even logging into Oak, that's their CMS, will be as scabby. Reporters tell me they're ready to pick it outside the building too. There will be plenty of photo ops, muses one. Sure, masthead myrmidons will have enough copy in the hopper to keep that homepage humming for a little while. And it's not as though the app on your phone will suddenly go blank. I mean, again, just talking to children, who in the world would think that their app is going to go blank? <laughs> but the walkout threat is a marked escalation from an ordinarily fissiparous newsroom. It's the sort of stunt that precedes an actual sustained strike. It's like the writer is trying to impress his writer friends at the New York Times who are going to walk out with his vocabulary. These people are such losers. <laughs> Obviously, the next step, if we can't get anywhere at the negotiating table, is to consider things like a strike authorization vote, says reporter Michael Powell, adding that, quote, 
None of us want to step into the terra incognita if this isn't seen as a significant warning shot, end quote, which basically means they just have absolutely no commitment to their position whatsoever. They don't want to embrace the unknown if their one day walkout threat doesn't get the job done. (laughs) Senior staff editor Tom Coffey has been at the New York Times since 1997 and says, I think this is the worst I've seen it since the staff mutiny that led to Howell Raines being fired. (laughs) What is wrong with these people's lives? Honestly, everything is the biggest drama in the world. Everything, just another chance to play victim and emote. The staff is steamed because they feel the paper is sitting on a pot of gold. We have been lectured about the dire economic future the company faces, even as the company tells Wall Street about a successful corporation that can afford to pay millions in salaries and benefits to its top executives, states the letter. According to an SEC proxy statement, Salzberger's total compensation grew nearly 50% last year, up to $3.6 million from $2.4 million. Coppet Levian's total compensation was $5.8 million, up from $4 million. Man, that's crazy. An overtly communist organization doesn't actually live out communist values when it comes to the people in power. I wonder if there's a lesson the New York Times employees could take from this situation. Powell says management's tactics feel increasingly provocative and that there's a real sense of building anger around this. I had to bring my computer in to get it worked on the other day, and the guys up in the computer shop and I were yammering about this, and I talked to the security guards about it too. It's a really bad place for a paper that, relatively speaking in this day and age for a newspaper, is doing quite well and has a pretty well-defined future. But the word relatively is key. The winter is shaping up to be a frosty one for everyone in the media as the economy teeters on the edge of recession. On Monday, Bob Iger said he isn't lifting Disney's hiring freeze. On Tuesday, James Dolan sent a memo to his employees at AMC Networks about a coming large-scale layoff. On Wednesday, Chris Licht cut the cord on more CNN employees, and there were layoffs at CBS Studios too. That same day, Sally Busby killed the Washington Post Sunday magazine, citing economic headwinds. On Thursday, there were cuts at Gannett. Penguin Random House is expected to have layoffs in January, and the HarperCollins strike is getting ugly. Man, the propaganda industry just isn't humming along like it used to. If I were a paranoid person, says Times television critic James Poniewozik, I might even say that the company was slow walking the negotiations in the hopes that they might strike a deal on wages at what seems to be a more dire economic time. Fortunately or unfortunately, the Times is doing pretty well. I've been a journalist for a long time. It's kind of always bad times for the media. And yet the Times, to its credit, is one of the few success stories in print and non-print media. And that's because of us. No, commie, it's not because of you. It's because you serve very wealthy masters and all of you are more than happy to lie to whatever extent will please those masters. And then they will funnel more money into your communist organization so you will continue to produce propaganda that benefits them. They're not paying for your journalistic integrity, you morons, because the entire world can see that you don't have any. Film critic Manola Dargis said, The paper represents and advocates on behalf of so many good noble values, but I think the paper sometimes forgets that we are not here as priests and nuns having committed ourselves to Christ for no money. We are laborers and we need to get paid for the work. And I think if you're going to advocate for good, you have to actually be good as well. Labor unrest at the Times is always awkward for the top editor, who gets pinioned between the newsroom they run and the business side to which they must answer. The big walkout would be the first real crisis for new executive editor Joe Kahn. Staffers report that he has 
been typically inscrutable through it all. Is he blameless? Anyone on the masthead level, I've got to assume they've got management's ear to some extent, says Panawazic. And if they want peace in the newsroom like we all do, I would hope they're using their voices however they can to lean on the ownership of the paper and tell them that this is a real problem. The paper, he adds, doesn't write itself. It might have to try, at least for one day. Now, you might think after these three stories in today's episode that the communists are really stupid and the communists think that everyone else is really stupid and that the communists don't care about the science. In fact, the communists don't even know the science. You might think that the communists don't care about free speech and in fact, love censorship. You might think that the communists go out of their minds anytime they're confronted with something they don't like and that they will choose to use whatever collective power they have to stifle any and all dissent, particularly if it's coming from powerful people with large platforms. And you might think that the communists don't actually live out their own ideals at all when their purported ideals begin to actually affect them. And you might think that they're all kind of just spoiled and pathetic weaklings who have gotten where they've gotten in life, mostly by rigging systems and then complaining incessantly when things don't work out in their favor. And you might have gotten the impression that the communists are doing all those things because the communists are doing all those things. Now, the good side of that is that their failure is on full display. And yes, it's true that they still do have enough cultural power to convince some people out there that they really are right and that their personal preferences must become societal priorities. But the reality underlying all of it is proof of their failure. If L.A. institutes the mask mandate, people will not accept it. They likely won't institute it in the first place. They just like to make these threats and make the people who still follow every word they say feel like they're still justified in making their terrible arguments. It's not a coincidence that L.A. is bringing up their potential mask mandate at the same time the N95 study comes out and shows that masks don't work at all, not even the last remaining way the CDC was pretending that they work. And Kanye West being suspended from Twitter is certainly not a credit to Elon Musk in his self-portrayal as a free speech absolutist. But if the trend that we've seen over the last five weeks that he's had control of the platform continues, maybe Some of this is just an ebb that will once again flow. And as far as the New York Times thing goes, that is just a blossoming disaster. The paper is making less money. They're paying their top executives more. All of their spoiled writers who produce nonsense propaganda are upset with their working conditions and they're expecting to receive better treatment while the rest of their industry is laying people off. That's not going to work out. None of this is going to work out. At this point, it's all so ridiculous that all you can really do is laugh at it. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. 
and I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!